Calvin and Hobbes are going down the hill in a wagon, and Calvin says, We all want meaningful lives. We look for meaning in everything we do. But suppose there is no meaning. Suppose life is fundamentally absurd. Suppose there's no reason or truth or rightness in anything. And they head off the cliff. Notice the cliff over here. What if nothing means anything? What if nothing really matters? In the final frame, Hobbes says, Well, I guess there's no harm in a little wishful thinking. Calvin says, Or suppose everything matters. Which would be worse as they are hurling to their doom? So, which is it? Does nothing matter or does everything matter? It's quite a question to be asking as you're flying across off a cliff. It would have been probably better to ask that before you started down the hill. If you were to ask Daryl Kane whether nothing or everything matters, I think he would tell you everything matters. You saw Friday's paper, you read the article about what happened 25 years ago Friday, where the officer, Daryl Kane, was interrogating a 12-year-old boy in his squad car. And I want to read to you his own words in a recent interview. This is what uh, Kane said. He said, I was in the back seat and I said to a fellow officer, I bet I can get him to talk. I pulled out my gun, emptied it, or so I thought, and put the bullets between my legs. I put it to the boy's head and pulled the trigger. The first time it clicked. The second time it went off. I just saw this flash of light. It lit up the interior of the car. I jumped out, screaming something like, Oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? The article goes on to talk about how he had to leave the Dallas Police Department in disgrace, how his wife left him. It talks about the, the racial riots that happened shortly after that. He was a, a white cop and the young boy whom he shot was Hispanic. Talked about how he had to spend his time in prison. And after 25 years, the point of this story is it's been 25 years now and it still haunts him. And the statement he made that really stuck out to me was this. He said, My mistake was taking a gun out of my holster. It should have stayed in my holster. He said that nobody was telling me to do that. He could point back to that very instance as the mistake. If you were to think about the worst mistake that you've made in your life, what makes it the worst mistake? It's probably because of the effects it had on your life. We've all made mistakes that we can look back on and they weren't really that big a deal or so we thought. The ramifications of them we haven't experienced, at least not yet. Maybe we never will. But to those things we look back and we think, hey, it's no big deal. But with the same decisions, we made those mistakes that are no big deal. We made mistakes that turn around and bit us. And they ended up being the worst mistakes of our lives, never realizing that they would be or certainly would have never done it. So as we look back at Calvin's question now, as he's flying off the cliff, it's not quite so comical. Because everything does matter. It matters a great deal. The 
problem is we don't know which things are going to have the greatest and lasting impact in our lives. What I'd like us to do today is to begin to learn to ask that question, does this matter, before we start flying off the cliff. Let's look together in Genesis chapter 49. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we uh, have one you can borrow or have if you can't afford the, I think it's like 10 bucks, and if that's beyond your means, and it's okay if it is, just take it, because we want you to have a Bible. And if you're able to bring it, bring it. You can jot down notes in the margin as we go through. But today is the second to last message. Next week we're going to finish up the life of Joseph. And today we look at Joseph's father, Jacob. He's dying. And he's on his deathbed and he's going to gather all his sons around him. And he's going to tell them what's going to happen to them in the future. That'd kind of be nice to know, I guess, for some of them. Let's look at verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to your father, and listen to Israel, your father. So he gathers his sons together, he tells them what's going to happen in their lives. So there's not just a prediction, this is actually prophecy. The Holy Spirit is inspiring this old man on his deathbed to say what's going to happen to the twelve sons of this man Israel or to the twelve tribes of the nation. And uh, there's really two types of predictions here. And we're going to look at one type and the other type we're pretty much going to ignore. The other type are the real short ones that we can't really get much from. For example, if you look at verse 19, the son Gad, what a name, Gad. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. There's just not a lot of spiritual application you can glean from that, from Gad. So uh, I'm not going to try to force anything on it. And there's several of these sons that have real short things like that. We're going to look at the ones that have a little more space. There are five of them. And they begin with Reuben in verse 3. A couple of months ago, you may remember the uh, Germany, that train that jumped the track. And it was going like 125 miles an hour and all those people that were killed. And Germany did an admirable thing shortly after that. They pulled dozens of their high-speed trains out of commission and examined them to make sure that the dis destruction wouldn't be repeated. And that's really a pretty wise thing to do when you look and you see a train that's derailed is to stop making progress, so to speak, in your own life. Just stop and examine your own wheels for a second so that you don't duplicate that disaster. And as we look at these first three sons, I think it'd be real wise for us to have that kind of an attitude. To look at somebody who made a poor decision and their life has suffered because of that decision so that we would not make that same kind of a decision and our life suffer as well. In verse 3, Reuben teaches us that privilege can never substitute for obedience. Jacob tells him, Reuben... You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. That Reuben is the 
firstborn, we're told. He's the oldest. The firstborn had rights that none of the other sons had. And in particular, he had preeminence. That means he was to be the leader of the whole clan when the dad dies. And yet, something happens in the life of Reuben that disqualifies him from this. I think it's so interesting how privilege in the life of somebody is often mistaken for a guarantee of success. Somebody's born with a lot of money, they figure they don't have to have morality or they don't have to have certain things that other folks have to have because they've got a privilege. They've got a gift or an advantage. And yet the irony of, of having a privilege is that taking advantage of the responsibilities that go with that privilege can cause you to lose that privilege. And that's what happened to Reuben. Look at verse 4. His father tells him, Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. He's speaking of an incident here that we didn't see in the life of Joseph. We haven't read. Back in the earlier part of Genesis, you see that Reuben went up and slept with his father's wife. Not his mother, it was a stepmother. Slept with his father's wife. And this was not just, and it says uncontrolled as water. It was not just uncontrolled in the sexual sense, but it was uncontrolled in his patience in waiting to be the leader of the tribe. Because the way that it was generally understood, if somebody would sleep with the wife of the leader of the tribe, then they are basically saying, I'll be the leader of the tribe. Uh, this is what happened to David, King David, when he was run, run out of Jerusalem. His son Absalom slept with his wives basically as an affront to David, saying, now I'm king. And so Reuben, in his impatience, in trying to get what was his as the firstborn, he actually lost it. Many an athlete in the starting gates, I mean, all the time and practice and all the ability that they have in the starting blocks there, They'll start before the gun and so disqualify themselves. And the potential that they had to run the good race, the potential they had to win, is all shot because they jumped the gun, literally. That's where we get the phrase. Because they were impatient and jumped the gun, too anxious to get things going. I see in Reuben the exact same thing. Without obedience, the potential that you have in your life can end up being ultimately lost. And that's what happened to Reuben. The giftedness or the potential or the advantage can actually turn into a weakness. Your strength can actually become a weakness. There's been many a beautiful woman that I've seen who has ended up really truly being ugly because of their attitude. Their beauty is totally wasted on their attitude. I've played with very gifted musicians who, have, who are so arrogant that nobody wants to be around them. Nobody wants to play with them. And so their giftedness is essentially wasted because nobody wants to use that giftedness because it comes with an, with an attitude. This is what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. The rich man loves... Uh, this is the danger is there for the rich man to love his money more than the kingdom of heaven. How much better it would be to use your privilege and link it with obedience and therefore get the benefits of that privilege. How much better it would be for the beautiful woman to use her beauty like Esther did in the Bible for the kingdom of God. He used her beauty as an advantage to God 
not to herself. How much better it would be for a gifted musician to link that with humility so that everybody gets to enjoy his gift and not just hate it when he stands up and shows everybody how great he is. How much better it would be for a rich man to use his wealth and link it with an obedient heart that's gracious and doesn't hoard it all and keep it all but uses it for the kingdom of God. You see, the privilege that you have, and everybody has one, some kind of a unique gift, some kind of an ability, something that you have that nobody else does, where God has placed you, that privilege, that strength can become your weakness. It can be your downfall because you'll lean on it too heavily and not on an obedient walk with God. And therefore you can blow the, uh, the privilege that you have. That's what happened to Reuben. He was the firstborn. He had a privilege of being able to rule or his descendants be able to rule. And he blew it because he didn't walk in obedience. I know that many of you, all of us actually, have blown benefits in the past that we haven't walked in obedience. And as a result, we're living and suffering through consequences now as opposed to enjoying the benefits of a privilege that we may have. You can't change the past. And I'm not talking about the past when I say, be careful what you did yesterday. I'm talking from the perspective of tomorrow, which is where you're going to spend most of your time, Lord willing. Not today, but the ever-coming tomorrow, the future. And so from tomorrow's perspective, you want to be careful what you did yesterday, meaning right now. Link the privileges that God's given you with obedience. Never substitute one for the other. Have them together. Another couple of bad examples are Simeon and Levi, and they're lumped together in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. From Simeon and Levi we get the painful principle that you and I have all dealt with. That is, that angry defenses lead only to divisions. When we try to defend ourselves to our spouse in an angry way, it only ends up driving us further apart. It's that way not just with a spouse, but with any close friend that you're familiar enough with to where you don't have to fake it. And the reality of who you really are comes out. Often in anger. Which leads to division. There was a guy named Houston Smith while he was teaching at MIT. He said that the author, Aldous Huxley, came there and was visiting as a professor. And Houston said that he tried to get as close to this guy as he could so that his wisdom would rub off. And on one occasion they were sitting and talking and Huxley said this to him. He said, you know, Houston, it's rather embarrassing to have spent one's entire life pondering the human condition and to come toward its close and to find that I really don't have anything more profound to pass on by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. Angry defenses lead only to divisions. 
Simeon and Levi found this out. You know how this happened? This is talking about an incident, again, that we didn't read. Simeon and Levi's sister was raped. And so to avenge her rape, they murdered a whole city. They worked it out a way for these men, where the men of the city would be ill. And they murdered the whole city out of revenge. And because of that act, the right of the firstborn didn't go to them either. They weren't going to be leaders. But rather, now the next son would be. That's a hard way to learn a hard lesson. We have now quite a contrast as we look at Judah and Joseph. The only two really good brothers out of this crew of the good, bad, and the ugly here. Verse 9, we see Judah. The leadership is given to the honest and reliable. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, meaning a cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. So because these brothers ahead, because Reuben, because Simeon, because Levi blew it, the leadership of the nation would now pass to Judah. And because Judah was a man who was honest and reliable, it would stop with Judah. It kept, could have kept just going all the way down to Joseph. But it didn't. The leadership would reside in Judah. Notice he's called a lion. You know who the lion of Judah is? Ultimately, Jesus. It is Jesus. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the lion of Judah. He descended from the tribe of Judah. Which makes the blunder of these other three brothers that much greater. They had no idea what kind of a blunder they were doing. Reuben, in that brief 15 minutes, you think he knew what he was doing? And losing the Messiah coming from his line? Do you think that Simeon and Levi would have done what they did? if they knew that they were going to blow the opportunity to have Jesus Christ descend from them. But because of that one act, it does matter what you did yesterday. It does matter what you do. And Judah, because he is able to be faithful, honest, and reliable, you can look back in his life, you can even see in the life of Joseph where we saw Judah is reliable. Remember, he was the one that said, let me stay in place of my brother. Because he had promised his father. That's what would happen. He had the character to have the leadership. In fact, if you were to look at verse 10, you see how Jesus Christ is even more clearly portrayed. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, till Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes, meaning wine. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. What in the world is this talking about? Well, he's using this illustration of a bunch of wine to represent blessing. An abundance of wine, an abundance of milk, a land flowing with milk and honey, was said to be a land of great blessing. And incidentally, what was Jesus' first miracle? To turn water into wine. Essentially saying, hey, here I am, the one that's bringing the blessing, the one who is the Lion of Judah, the one who holds this ruler's staff, the one who is going to be king. All because Judah was honest and reliable. The very last son that we're going to look at is Joseph. And how fitting that he should be final. 
In verse 22, Joseph teaches us that blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. Joseph is said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm. And his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, with blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills may they be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. How in the world... Does Joseph, the 11th born son out of 12, get all this blessing? Because we're told that when the archers bitterly attacked him and harassed him and shot at him, when he went through hell, in other words, his bow remained firm. The blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. Now to say that that was an easy task would be wrong. To say that it was worth it would be true. You and I are all shot by arrows. We're all shot by accusations, by the selfishness of a spouse, by the unfeelingness of a child, by the, the coldness of a friend. We're all shot at. But how are we going to respond to that? Man, this is hard to talk about. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't always do this either. David has a psalm that means a lot to me. Psalm 11. And in it he says, In the Lord I take refuge. And then he asks, How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what is the righteous one doing? In other words, where is God when you really need Him? And he answers that question. He says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see His face. David is saying, I'm going to hang tough to the Lord. And even though... Uh, wicked men shoot at me from shadows. I am not going to flee like a bird to some mountain. I'm going to hang tough. I'm going to hang in there and do what I need to do. Why? How can you do that? When the foundations of your life are being destroyed, how can you do that? Because the Lord is in His holy temple. He's on His heavenly throne. And the upright shall see His face. Blessings follow those who give in and endure faithfully. So I want to tell you, don't quit that marriage just because it's hard. It's two sinners living together. Of course it's going to be hard. Don't quit praying a specific thing just because uh, God doesn't seem to answer. His timetable may be a little differently in His all-knowing wisdom. Don't quit being kind and faithful at your job and being thankful for it just because there's some jerk that, walk, that works across the office from you. That he's having a bad day doesn't, make, doesn't mean you have to have one. 
Blessings will follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. Don't give up purity as a single just because it's difficult and because the whole world is doing differently. To say it would be easy would be a lie. But to say it's worth it would be true. It's worth the blessings. All of these sons that we've looked at, the good and the bad and all of them, are like feathers on one arrow. Some of them are headed different directions, but that arrow is making one point that is summarized very well in verse 28. And that point is that believers' actions are going to determine their future blessings. It says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. It's not a blanket blessing from God. It is the blessing appropriate to you. Believers' actions are going to determine your future blessings. You know, to me, the tragedy of this, of Reuben and of Simeon and Levi, these three brothers that blew it, is what could have been. What could have been. Messiah could have come from them. But because they chose wickedly, he didn't. Blessing could have come to them, but because of decisions they made in the heat of the moment, it didn't. How critical are the decisions that we make for our future? I guarantee you, if Reuben and, and Simeon and Levi were to look back, they would never have done what they did if they'd known what they were going to lose. I have read statistics of people, of people that have lost in their marriage because of adultery, and they have said, I would never have done it if I had known the pain that it would cause. You know that policeman I told you about, Daryl Kane, made that statement. The mistake was taking my gun out of the holster. He could look back to a point 25 years ago and say, I know right when it happened. I know right when my life changed. It was the moment I undid that snap. That was the moment. And you and I can look back at one, maybe two times in our lives big mistakes that we made that all stemmed from one thing. That moment that we chose to get off the straight and narrow and to walk according to our lusts. Now God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. And while you and I may stand here forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and we've placed our faith in Him, we stand here forgiven. And yet, if I lop off my arm, my arm is going to stay lopped off whether Jesus died for me a thousand times. There are things that you and I are dealing with, consequences from mistakes we've made in the past, that Jesus may not take those mistakes away from your life. When King David committed adultery, he was told the sword will never depart from your house. And while he was forgiven, he had to live with the results of that bad decision the rest of his life. So I want to tell you, don't expect that God owes you to fix what you messed up. 
He may not do it. He may leave it there. He may leave that scar in your life to remind you never to walk down that path again. And if He does it for that reason, it's grace. Take your lumps like a man. Take your lumps like a woman. If you live that way and are suffering the consequences of it now, then live there. Don't be unfaithful to try to get out of those consequences. But yet, I'm not really here to talk about the past. When I say, be careful what you did yesterday, I'm talking from tomorrow's perspective. Because that's where we're headed, Lord willing. You're going to make decisions today that may affect the rest of your life and the rest of your kids' lives. Remember, he's talking to these 12 sons and what would happen to them in their future. The tribes that would come after them are affected by the attitudes and actions of their parents, of those who came before. And how true you and I know. We're like our parents. We suffer the mistakes of our parents. Our kids are going to suffer our mistakes. That's the way it is. So how crucial it is, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our kids, to make good decisions. You and I have heard many messages from this church. And I mean I too. I'm not, I haven't been the only one preaching here in the eight years that we've been here. And I dare say that there's probably very few messages that you even remember. Okay? You may have been coming here for eight years and not even remember last week. That's the way we are. I'm not dogging you for that. It's just the way we are. I don't remember all the messages I've heard either. But messages are like a like water over a sieve or a strainer. You know, you don't keep it, but it keeps your strainer clean. That's why it's good to come. That's why it's good to read your Bible. You know, I don't know how many times I've read the Bible and I don't remember the whole thing. I've read the whole thing, but I don't remember the whole thing. It's like a, a just cleans you. It keeps you walking in fellowship with God. And I say all this to say you probably don't remember even much of this message, even though I've just spoken it. When I was in seminary, I heard, I don't know how many messages from the chapel. People would get up and speak and, you know, we'd all think, boy, that's wonderful, walk out feeling great and forget it. There was one message I heard that was like a marble in my strainer. One word I remember. My, one of my professors, uh, Howard Hendricks, was giving a message in chapel one day. And he was talking, I don't remember anything else about the message except this one word. And he was talking something about the effects of our decisions in our lives, much like we were talking about today. And as he looked around at all of us seminary students who were headed into ministry and the great potential that we had, the only one word I remember out of the whole message is as he looked at us and, and he said, Think! I don't know why that's stuck in my mind. <laughs> but I remember that. And it may be that you won't remember anything else about this message today but that one word. And that's okay. Even though it's not my word. You are going to face today and in the future decisions that matter. Calvin's flying off the cliff and only then he asks, or maybe everything matters. We know it all does. Daryl Cain knows it does. These three sons that lost the Messiah coming from them, they know. And you and I can look back in our past at the little insignificant compromises we made that we are still suffering for today. Everything matters. So think. Think about the decisions that you make. 
They are not trivial, either to you or your children. Think. Be careful what you did yesterday. There was a high school kid named Jason. Jason Tusks. Lived in central Florida. He was an avid swimmer and he loved his family with all his heart. In fact, it was his mother's birthday when he went out. That night they were going to go celebrate mother's birthday. And that day he went out scuba diving in one of the uh, underwater caverns that was there close to his house. And while he was in that cavern, he got lost. And in his panic, he got stuck. Now imagine, okay, underwater, except for your flashlight in these caverns, is completely pitch black. And you're scuba diving and you get stuck and you're lost. He knew that he was going to die. So he took off his tank, one of those yellow tanks, and he unsheathed his diver's knife and he used the knife like a pen and his tank like a tablet. And he wrote on it. He wrote, I love you, Mom and Dad. And Christian was his brother. And then he ran out of air and drowned. And they found him, having written that note. Isn't it interesting to you how when someone dies, their dying words kind of boil life down to their essence? of what really matters. I love you, mom and dad and Christian. The dying words of this old man to his sons. This is the last thing they ever heard him say. These words that we read to each of the sons. And essentially he told them, sons, your actions matter. So be careful. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that your grace covers all of our sins. And though we have all sinned and fall short of your glory, by the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, every single one may be forgiven if we simply place our faith in you. Lord, I ask for your mercy today on each of us that you would help us to think. Help us to take these decisions that we make every single day, the way we respond to our spouse, the way we treat our children, our attitude toward our job, our attitude toward everything. Lord, everything matters. Help us to think. Because blessings come to those who dig in and stay faithful, not to those who take advantage of you, and compromise obedience like Reuben, like Simeon, and like Levi. Help us, Lord, to be like Joseph, who when the archers shoot at us, and when we are irritable and irritated, that we would be faithful and enjoy the blessings of those decisions rather than the curses. We pray in Jesus' name.